0: Let's look in our copy of the Word of God this morning to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Or if you're using the Bible that's located in the pew in front of you, you can find that on page 1139. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11 or 1139. 1139 and the Bible that's in the pew in front of you. And I know we just stood up and sat down, but I would invite you just to stand up uh, one last time as we uh, read this text together. We're gonna read really just verses 23 through 26. I know it says 36 up there, but uh, I think that might've been a typo on my part. So uh, chapter 11, verse 23 through 26. 26. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I had a a friend in college, I think I've told you about her before. Um, She grew up in one of these homes that was a very performance-driven home and uh parents had a list of rules in the house that was probably more complicated than the U.S. tax code. And and so you can you can imagine that uh, growing up in a performance-based environment like that, you can imagine that this was a young lady that when she got to college, she really struggled with her assurance of salvation. And I, I think that she was saved. And of course, obviously, I don't know her heart, but... Um, but all fruit indicated that she was, but she was just someone that really struggled with it. And, and just about every one of the college ministers, just about every one of the student ministers, uh, she would go to and ask, well, how do I know I'm saved? How do I know I'm saved? How do I know I'm saved? And, and, and they would always kind of draw her back to, well, what did you feel whenever uh, you prayed to receive the Lord? Or, or what you know, what did you experience? Or, or things like that. And so, uh, and none of that ever really seemed to help. And so uh, when I kind of got serious about the ministry again and told the college group that I was going to pursue ministry instead of what I was doing, naturally, one of the first visits I got was from her and asking me the same question. How do, how do you know you're saved? How do I know I'm saved? And, and, and in my immaturity, I, I probably didn't give her the best answer in the world, um, I, I did tell her to quit looking at herself and what she felt or what she did and look to Jesus and, uh, and, and really looking to Christ is where we need to be looking at. You can't, you can't look at Christ on the cross and doubt his willingness to save you, amen? And so, but, but even then, uh, that was probably a better answer than some of the others, but I, I think there's other things that I probably could have counseled her. But I remember thinking, you know, in America, we're so, we so want quick fixes, and, uh, and I remember thinking, man, if there was, I wish there was a pill that I could give her, that she could just take it every now and then, and when she took that pill, she would have the assurance of her faith. I, I just wish there was a like something tangible that I could give her, that whenever she would take it, she would remember that she is in Christ. And of course, what I was asking for, I didn't even realize it until years down the road, But the Lord actually gave that to us, not a pill, but he did give us a visible sign to remind us over and over and over again that we are in the faith. And that is the sign of communion. Now, I tend to call it communion. I don't even really know when I started that. Uh, It does go by a couple of different names, uh, some of which we don't use because of the baggage that comes with it. Like for example, uh, there is the term Eucharist. Okay, now now that refers to the thanksgiving uh, Eucharisto, which means to give thanks. It refers to the giving of thanks we give before we pass out before we pass out the elements. That's a good word for it, but because of the baggage that comes with it, we don't tend to use that one. So communion. Uh, is the one I use. Again, I really don't know why. Probably a better name for it is the one that the Bible uses. Imagine that, and that is the Lord's Supper. And so, but whatever name you use, we're we're referring to the same thing, and and that's what we are here to do this morning. And it is such an important part of the Christian life. In fact, Jesus assumes he commands that as often as you do it, and I've always said that you know he says as often, not as seldom. So if we're going to if we're going to err on one side, let's err on the side of often, not erring on the side of seldom, and uh, and we're going to say a little more about that later. But my prayer this morning is that as we come to the Lord's table once again, we will we will understand that we will kind of get a grasp of its significance and what it does in the life of a Christian, but also in the life of a church. One of the reasons why I do call it communion is that we do it. It's designed to be done together. Now, now I'm not personally opposed, to like if a small group wanted to have communion or if a Sunday school class wanted to have it, I'm not really opposed to that, um, but I don't take it to the hospital. I don't do stuff like that unless it's requested. I mean, I don't, Again, that's not something that I necessarily have a problem with, but I do see it as something that is to be done when you gather together. So whether that's one of the smaller groups of the church or whether that's the large gathering, uh, I think by design it's meant to be done together. So that's why I don't typically do it for individuals. But uh, but anyway, give or take that. But as we look at this text this morning, I want to look at it, and I want you to see something here. Number one, that Paul begins in verse 23, he says... For I receive. Let's stop right there for a moment. And I want you to notice that word for. What, what's so important about that is, that is that when we read this text, beloved, in our in our participation of the of the table, even when we preach on it, we tend to, we tend to teach it in isolation of its context. And so, and yet Paul is using this in a context, and and by understanding that it's going to help us understand a function that it has in the life of the church. Why is Paul doing this? He is over and over again in the book of 1 Corinthians, and this is a church that had massive problems, stuff that like Greek, Greek tragedies were written about, you know, I mean, just, just crazy stuff going on. And, uh, and over and over and over again, in various ways and different ideas, he always brings them back to the gospel over and over again how does the gospel relate to this how does the gospel solve this how does the gospel view what you're doing in light of the gospel and once again in this text we find in verses 17 through 22 that the Corinthians are gathering together and they're coming together for a meal and one of the things we know about Roman meals is that they were kind of a they were kind of a socialite gathering you know if you get the democrat gazette I don't know if they do it anymore but but in the there used to be one section completely devoted to uh like socialites or 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 stuff like that, and you'd always have these big spreads about all these people dressed up in their tuxedos and and their wedding dresses, or, or at least I thought it was, but their former attire, and and it's high society, right? And that's kind of what would happen here, these houses that we have found often had two dining rooms. There was one in the nice part of the house, and then there was one in the courtyard, and the socialite elites would always eat in the nice area, and the have-nots, the servants and all the others, the poor people, they would eat in the courtyard, and depending on where you were, gave you status. You remember Jesus talked about this. Don't, you know, don't don't push for the, the chair of honor, right? And so what was happening is that they had imported that practice into their practice of the Lord's Supper. And so you had the haves that were the social elite who were in their nice fancy dining room and they were eating to excess and even getting drunk and then you would have the poor guys out in the courtyard. They weren't getting anything. In fact, they were leaving hungry. And I love what Paul says here. He says, look, if you're doing that, you're not eating the Lord's Supper. It's not, when you come together, I think it's verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. If you're using anything in the church for your own personal gain, for your own personal status booster, then you are not doing it for the Lord And so, and then as a corrective to that, he reminds them again of the gospel. And specifically, he's bringing them back to the institution of the Lord's Supper. And so at verse 23, he says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. He brings them back to this, what the Lord's Supper is. It's a picture of the gospel. What you're doing is a picture of Roman culture. It is not a picture of the gospel. But when you come together, it is the gospel that you are to portray. And that is often going to be countercultural. That is often going to fly in the face of what we do in our culture. That's why we always have to be careful about marketing techniques and and the latest fads and all that. I'm not saying that they're all bad in and of themselves, but that's why we've always gotta be careful and make sure that everything we do portrays the gospel. And nothing is more true of that than the Lord's Supper. And so what we're gonna see this morning in this text that Paul reminds the Corinthian church of the significance of the Lord's Supper for the life of the church as well as the life of the Christian. And the question is, how, what are we to remember when we take the Lord's Supper? He says that twice. Do this in remembrance of me. And the question is, what are we looking at? What are we looking to when we take the Lord's Supper? We're gonna see that there are three directions He commands us to look. By the way, I don't have a PowerPoint this morning, so I just wanted you to just kind of, more than taking notes, I just kind of wanted you to sit back and, and be fed this morning. So, but three directions that he wants us to look. So number one, he wants us to look backward. He wants us to look backwards. Look what he says in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. And so Paul is practically quoting word for word the words that are recorded in in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now the words uh, correspond a little more closely to Luke. But we know that all of this goes back to that one time, the night that Jesus was betrayed, that he sat with his 12 apostles, and he broke bread with them, and he instituted this practice. And he said that it was to continue this rite, this sign, was to continue until he comes again you know it's tempting to read over this part without paying much attention to it but, but don't think but don't do that think about this for a moment paul is pointing them back to an actual occurrence that really happened in time in history in other words when we take the lord's supper we're not just thinking about a system of doctrines we're not just thinking about a system of wise tales we're not just thinking about, uh, you know, pictures or paintings or or poetry or or any of those kinds of things. But when we take the Lord's Supper, we are remembering something that actually took place in time in history. We are remembering that we serve a God who did not give us just a bunch of proverbs to memorize like some other religions, but we are serving a God who actually interfered in history in order to redeem us. And that is something that we have as Christians that, beloved, most other religions don't have. I remember um, I was listening to a debate between a Muslim and a And it happened to be a Catholic, but it was someone who was defending the resurrection, and uh, and the Muslim was saying, you know, we 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 can pray to uh, Allah, and we know where our founder is. We know where he is buried, and we know we can go to that grave, and we can sit there, and we know that he's on the other. And he stopped. (laughs) And the Catholic priest goes, "You're exactly right. Muhammad is still there, but we don't serve a dead teacher. We serve a living God." and he is not in the grave. And I was like, I was rooting for the Catholics that day, let me tell you, so <laughs> that was awesome. But, but it is absolutely true. We don't, just, we don't just serve a system of rules, but we remember a God who interfered in history, who came into life. And beloved, he didn't come to the world of Little House on the Prairie He didn't come to the world of our, of, of, of kind of this pristine place, but he came to first century Israel, which was a political, social, and and just absolute mess. He came to the real world, the world that we live in, that is full of problems, full of issues, full of hardship full of difficulty, he came where there is real sickness, real disease, real all of this. He came to this world, he came to our world, and he died for our sins so that he could really save us. And that is what we remember. We look backwards to the night that Jesus was betrayed. First John chapter one, verses one through three, I won't read it all, but he says, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked at and touched with our hands. The word of life. The Life was made manifest and we saw it. We testify to it. We proclaim. Verse three, and we have seen, we heard, we proclaim. Do you get the idea? It's emphasizing something here. It's like we saw this. With our eyes, we heard him with our ears. We touched him with our hands. There was a living, breathing Jesus Christ who was truly God, truly man, who died on the cross for our sins. We saw him perform miracles. We heard his teaching. We saw him raise the dead. We saw, we heard him speak words that we've never heard before. We saw him heal the blind. We saw him tell the lame man to walk and he did. We saw him speak and argue with the Pharisees. And then we saw him march up the hill of Calvary and we saw him give his life for our sins and praise God three days later, we saw him alive again. And that is something that really happened. Emphasizes this over and over and over again. So beloved, when I take the supper, and and this is just me, but when I take the supper, uh, you know, when I when I eat the bread. I think of that tangible bread, that real bread that is in my mouth. Nothing magical happens with it. It doesn't turn into anything. It's bread is bread is bread, okay? But as I bite down on it and as that bread crushes in my mouth, I think of the real body that was crushed from my sins. And as it is being torn apart, I think of the lashes. I think of the lashes, I think of the thorns. I think of all the whips that, that ripped apart the flesh of Christ as he died. How every single stripe that shed blood paid for my sins. When I take the cup and it, and it pours down the back of my throat, I think of the blood that poured down the cross of Calvary. Sometimes I would kind of hold it in my mouth for a moment and just think of the the pool of blood. Am I weird? I I don't. I don't know. But but it just it just it helps me think of the tangibleness of the actual historical event that happened. This is not fairy tales, beloved. This is not wise tales. This is not old wives' tales. This is something that really happened. You know, people, when the passion came out, people asked me, was it really that bad? I'll say, no, it was worse. What they did to Jesus, you can't show on a screen. But you know, the physical was nothing compared to the spiritual weight of carrying all of my sins on his shoulders. How darkness came over the face of the earth for three hours, where the father turned cannot bear to look at the sin and that's me he should have been turning away from but beloved he turned away from his son so that he may turn back to me and that's what we remember we look backwards that's just the first point let's move on we look inward we look inward, look at the uh, rest of the verse. He says, The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. There's been a, there's been a trend in um, scholarship to to try to identify exactly what point in the Passover meal that Jesus does this. Uh, You know, the cup that he blesses, is it it the third cup of blessing in the the meal? And and they'll go to historical sources and they'll they'll say, you know, well, he would have broken the bread at this point in the meal. And and, uh, in fact, there's even a a lot of guys today will even hold like a, a it's it's a Passover meal, but in modern days it's called a seder. I don't know if you knew that or not. So, but when you hear people call a, talk about a seder meal, they'll talk about uh, keeping a Passover meal, and they'll they'll incorporate this kind of stuff in, and and that's cool. You know, I don't I don't have a problem with that. Um, I'll be honest with you. I've I mean just just me personally, I've never really been interested in that uh, personally. Number one, because the bitter herbs taste horrible. Uh, but number two, uh, because the the scriptures really don't give us those details. Um, it doesn't really tell us those kinds of things. What it does tell us is that Jesus took the bread and he took the wine, and he radically redefined the significance of them. And what I've always been more interested in is what is the significance of these things for the church, not necessarily what was the significance uh, for the Jews. Now, again, it can kind of help you understand Uh, what the Jews might've been thinking of, what the apostles might've been thinking of as they took this, you know, more power to you. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Uh, Just know that it's really not something I'm interested in. But, But I am interested in how Jesus radically redefines these things. And he says, he tooks the bread, tooks, is that a word? He takes the bread and he says, this is my body. This is my body. I want you to notice the very close identification that he gives with, with the bread saying, this is my body, and then he gives the cup and he says, this is my blood. There, there is a, a, an objective reality that, the, that communion is pointing to, that this is my body, which was broken for you. This is the blood of the new covenant that was poured out for you. And I, and I know there's a debate of, you know, um, you know is, is Christ spiritually present in communion? I personally don't have a problem with that. In fact, I, I think that he is. Uh, not in any kind of magical sense, but in the same sense that he says in, in Matthew 28, verse 20, that, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. He says in Matthew 18, that where two or three are gathered together, I am there with you. Uh, and so so I don't have a problem saying that, that Christ is spiritually present in a special way when we take communion. I'm, I don't have a problem with that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not completely Zwinglian on that, on that view. Uh, however, the, the primary goal, again, there's nothing magical that happens to the bread. There's nothing magical that happens to the cup. They're just tangible reminders of what we have in Jesus Christ. Just like he says in John chapter six, that when you, when you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, in other words, when you take me in by faith, you will never hunger or thirst again for righteousness. You have it. You have it in Christ. And so, again, it's um, that—that's really what I'm looking to. I'm—I'm—I—I want to see how Christ radically redefines these things. And there—and there's kind of something weird that happens here. Something weird that happens here. Um, have you ever thought about this? Where—where where are they? They're taking Passover, right? And, he's, and he breaks the bread and says, "This is my body, which is given for you." Why not the lamb?" Have you ever thought about that? Why not the lamb? I mean, I mean, there's been many times in Christ's life where, where he even calls himself the Lamb of God. John, when he introduced Jesus in those early days, he says, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We have two glimpses of worship in heaven. One of them is worshiping God for his creation, but the other one in Revelation chapter five is when they look and they see a lamb as though he has been slain. Beloved, Christ will always be known as the lamb of God slain for our sins. but he doesn't cut the lamb and say, this is my body. He doesn't do that. He breaks the bread and says, this is my body. Have you ever thought about that? Why the bread? Why the bread? Think about this. When I was in Denver, I told you guys some of the story. And Easter one Sunday, we used to meet at a school and all the churches that met in school almost almost got kicked out. You know why? because some church in one of the schools sacrificed a live chicken on Easter Sunday. And the janitor saw it, reported it, and we all nearly got, we all nearly got thrown out. Um, now, I know as Baptists, we sacrifice chickens every Sunday. We just let Colonel Sanders do the killing for us. But, but the point is, is that they shed blood on Easter Sunday. And what would have to happen if Jesus gave us the Lamb to be His body? What would have to happen in order for us to partake in communion? We would have to shed blood. But, beloved, the blood has been shed. Just like last week when we talked about baptism, how baptism is our confession of faith, it's our entry into the covenant. The entry into the old covenant was circumcision. What did you do when you circumcised an infant? What do you do? You shed blood. And then for Passover, what did you do? You shed blood. But beloved, the two signs of the new covenant, baptism and holy communion, they are bloodless signs. Why? Because the blood has been shed. And because Christ now lives forever, he intercedes for us on the merit of his own blood and he lives forever and ever. And because of that, Hebrews chapter seven, he is able to save to the uttermost, he's able to save forever those who draw near to him. There is no more blood required for our salvation. The blood has been shed. Jesus's blood covers all of our sins. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Because he lives forever on the basis of his own shed blood, he is able to save us for forever. If you want eternal security, there it is. You know the only way you're gonna lose your salvation is if Jesus dies again. You think that's gonna happen? No. And so we remember. So when we take the supper, how do we look inward? We have these objective facts. We have the body, we have the blood, but he says, do this in remembrance of me. Beloved, the bread and the wine or the, or the juice, the, the bread and the juice, they don't do anything magical in us. But when we take them, we remember these things. How? by faith. And it's when these things come to us in faith that they strengthen us, they confirm us. There are objective elements of our faith that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. There's there's those objective things we remember, but we also remember subjectively that we have placed our faith in this. And that this is the basis of our salvation. That's why we do this in remembrance of him. We're not just remembering the facts, but we're remembering, we're remembering that we have accepted that. We have taken that in by faith. And in the same way that the bread is digested and becomes a part of our body, in the same way that the juice is digested and becomes a part of our body, in the same way we take Christ in by faith, and he becomes our life. We are crucified with Christ. It's no longer us who live, but Christ lives in us. Amen? There's so much significance in the supper, so much significance, that we remember these things. When we take them faithfully, we're building our faith. It reminds us, assures us, convicts us, helps us, and strengthens us We are strengthened by the supper. God uses his means to build our faith and the supper is one of those means. It's a tangible reminder. One of the things I like to say is that the supper does for our other senses what preaching does for our ears, right? We hear the word through preaching. We see the gospel in baptism, but we feel it, we taste it, we touch it through the supper. All of this points to the gospel so that our whole life, our whole life, every sense is engaged and we are reminded of the gospel time and time and time again. That's why I think we need to err on the side of often and not on the side of seldom. And so. It's an outward visible sign of an inner invisible reality. Just like baptism is an outward sign of our invisible identification with Christ, communion is an outward sign of our communion with Christ. That we participate in his death and thus we have freedom from sin to live for him. Christ lives in me. And when I take the supper in me, I'm reminded that, that his life, his death is incorporated into me. And now I live by his strength. Now I live by his power and by his might. So we look backward, we look inward, and just very quickly we look forward. What's the significance of this? Paul says in verse 26, as often as you eat this bread, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Every one of the historical accounts of Jesus's institution of the Last Supper includes that he tells them that I will not eat this with you again until I come back in my kingdom, in my glory. There is a a prophetic proclamation that comes to it that we are once again looking forward to when Christ will come. We look at his first coming, we look at his death, but we're also looking forward to his coming again. I remember a comedian, and it's a name that you would all recognize. Uh, He was a Christian comedian. Uh, used to sing with the Gaithers and, and such, and so... And uh, he did some comedy tours for a little while, and and anyway, he was uh, he was talking one time about how when he gets to heaven, he's looking forward to forward to the marriage supper of the lamb, so that we can stop eating the Lord's snack. (laughs) And he was talking about how uh, one Sunday when he was a kid, he was a pretty rambunctious kid. You all know who I'm talking about. It's Mark Lowry, but uh, (laughs) but he was talking about how he was a really rambunctious kid, and. And he would take that little piece of bread and then he'd drink that little cup and he'd say, man, I'm full. (laughs) And uh, of course, his mom would get on to him and such. And, you know, and I used to joke about that too. But, you know, there's actually a reason why we don't eat to the full. Have you thought about that? Why is the Lord's Supper just a little bitty piece of bread and a little bitty cup of wine? That's not going to fill anybody. And, and I am convinced that the early church, when they did the Lord's Supper, they probably did it in the context of a, of a larger meal. I'm, I am pretty convinced of that, but it doesn't mean we have to. I'm just saying that's the way they probably did it. But um, why not? Why don't we eat to the full? Because, beloved, if we, if we ate to the full of bread and we drank to the full of wine, what would that signify? It would signify that the fullness is here, right? But we're waiting for the fullness. We don't eat to the full because the fullness is yet to come. We don't come to the Lord's Supper hungry, hoping to be filled. We come to the Lord's Supper waiting, waiting for the fullness of the expectation of our returning Lord. And that's why we don't eat to the full. That's why we don't have a a huge banquet whenever we have communion. Now, I don't think it has to be like super solemn. I I think you can smile during communion. That's okay. I'm not saying that. But there is a reason why we don't come here expecting to be filled physically because we are waiting for the real feast. Christ says, I will not eat of this feast with you again until I come in my glory. We are waiting for that. Sometimes when uh, we go to Little Rock, Roxanne and I have a rule that we're not allowed to eat at a restaurant in Little Rock that we can eat at in Batesville. Okay, we don't do that. And so that's like our rule. We, we go to Little Rock, we wanna, eat at a, we wanna eat at a place that we can only eat at in Little Rock, right? Not even Cersei. We wanna eat at a place that we can only eat at in Little Rock, right? But man, we're hungry. And so sometimes we'll stop by Casey's or something like that, and we'll just get a little bitty snack to hold us over, just to, just to help us, you know, just enough to kind of curb off the hunger pains, until we get the little rock so we can eat the fullness. And beloved, that's what we do when we eat the supper. We're taking just a little bit, just a little bit. And as we take it in expectation, we take it in the hope and expectation that the fullness is coming, that the real feast is coming and we will partake of it with the Lord himself. That's what I'm looking forward to. Amen. Amen. Yes, I do believe Christ is with us spiritually in communion. But beloved, one day, we will sit down and feast at him at the table and he will be with us fully in the flesh and that glorified, resurrected body, and oh, what a day that will be. That's what I'm looking forward to, amen? And That's what we look forward to in this meeting, in this gathering. So, I praise the Lord for this supper. I'm so thankful for this sign. I'm thankful that it's a bloodless sign, signifying that the blood has been shed. I'm thankful that we remember backwards, we look inward, we look forward because Christ has done it all for us. I wanna to talk to two people here this morning. Maybe you're here and you're like me when I was a kid. I, uh, I was taught a bad view of sanctification and holiness. I thought, I, I thought when I finally surrendered enough that my fight with sin would not be as as, as uh, intense anymore and I would have victory over sin and all I had to do was surrender my life, surrender, give it to God, give it to God, et cetera, et cetera let go and let God and, and all that. And I was constantly thinking, well, am I surrendered enough? Am I surrendered enough? And beloved, I went for three years without taking communion because I didn't think I was holy enough to take it. If you're here this morning and that's you, I invite you to the table because you don't have to be holy enough to take the meal. Beloved, the meal is here because you're not holy enough. It is a meal of grace. It is a meal of the gospel. It is a meal that we take because we've sinned. We don't take it only when we haven't sinned. We take it because we've sinned. That's why we need it. Don't ever skip the supper because you don't think you're good enough. Take it because you're not. That's what the rest of us do, at least I hope. But if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your savior, beloved, this text goes on to warn you that if you take of the supper, if you take of that witness, if you receive the word, but you do so in an unworthy way, you are testifying against yourself that you have heard the gospel, but you have not responded to it. And, you, and, the, and the words that the scripture actually uses is, you are eating and drinking judgment to yourself. And if you're here and you don't have the gospel, I pray that you would do so this morning. Let this be a sign to you of your need for the gospel. That's what it's supposed to do. Two of my three kids were saved because we had communion and they asked questions. It is a picture of the gospel, a very effective one. Parents, let your kids ask questions. Don't make them be quiet during communion. Let them ask questions and answer their questions because that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to invoke questions, right? So that's what it's supposed to do. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I invite you to come to him. Let's bow our heads and let's prepare for the supper this morning. I am going to ask our servants to go ahead and come forward as we prepare for the meal. And during this time, beloved, one of the, one of the fruits of the gospel is that we come to Christ in humility, We come to Christ in confession of our sins. And if you're here this morning, I invite you just to take a moment to ask yourself what what sins are there that I may need to confess. Maybe you need to pray a prayer such as Psalm 139. Lord, search me, try me, see if there be any wicked way in me, cleanse me and make me whole. I'll give you just a few minutes to do that.